Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Again, everyone, and welcome back to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. So we're going to jump right in today, Joe Resinello. Uh, we have on two great guests, returning guests to our show to discuss uh, well, first of all, it's Joseph Pierce uh, and Dale Alquist, and we're going to be discussing Joseph Pierce's new book, 12 Great Books Going Deeper into Classic Literature. Uh, we don't read enough. We don't read enough in America. We certainly don't read enough of the great books, okay? Joe and I both went to Catholic school, and, and some of the books that are on this uh, in this book, um, we've gotten a chance to read, but certainly in, in our education system, we're not reading enough, and we're certainly not reading the great books. And we want to talk about, well, what is it? What does it mean to be a great book? What is a great book? So that's why we're happy that we have Joseph and Dale to discuss this. Most of you out there know Joseph Pierce and Dale Alquist. Having said that, uh, Joseph Pierce is the author of new, numerous literary studies, including Literary Converts, The Quest for Shakespeare, and Shakespeare on Love, as well as his biographies of Oscar Wilde, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He is the general editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions series. Also, we encourage you all to subscribe to Joseph Pierce on his website at jpierce.co, J-P-E-A-R-C-E dot CO. Okay. We encourage you to do so. DL Alquist is president of the Society of GK Chesterton, creator and host of the long-running EWTN EWTN series on GK Chesterton and publisher of Gilbert magazine. He's considered the greatest living authority on the life and works of Chesterton. His books include The Apostle of Common Sense, The Complete Thinker, Knight of the Holy Ghost, and Common Sense 101. Joseph Pierce and Dale Alquist, welcome back to the front line with Joe and Joe. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, and with that, I'm going to hand it over to Joe Resinello, and we are going to have a great conversation. We always start with a prayer, gentlemen, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Remember, O oh, most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly unto you, a virgin of virgins, our mother. To you we come, but for you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in your clemency hear and answer us. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as Joe P said, um, we'll define some terms. Let's uh, go to Joseph Pierce first. What is a great book? And then we're going to go to Dale. Define for us what civilization is, not the Klaus Schwab version of civilization. Something tells me you're not going to give us the World Economic Forum version of what civilization is, but your own, how you view it, um, and how the great books will help us to basically, in, in many ways, we have to renew it. All right, who do you want to go first? Yeah, right. Joseph. I, I, let's start with Joseph. Me to go first? 
All right. Okay. Um, so uh, the, the first of all, uh, the, what it isn't is if you go to Wikipedia, the first thing will tell you that, that civilization is all about complexity. And the more complex and complicated a, a society becomes, it more civilized it becomes. So high taxes means being more civilized. Clearly, that's, that's a load of nonsense. So uh, the, the correct version of civilization ultimately is a, it's a synonym for Christendom. It's, it, it's a culture... Uh, and a society that reflects in its life, in its in its practice, in its beliefs, authentic goodness, truth, and beauty as made manifest in Jesus Christ when he calls himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So authentic civilization, or at least civilization in its fullness, is, uh, is Christendom, and Christendom is the endeavor on earth to allow the city of God to 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 be uh, paramount over the city of man in Augustinian terms. So that's what civilization is, as 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 I uh, see it. And Dale, what about great books? Um, like like how would you like how would you define a great book? Like like there's twelve there's twelve books in this book written by Joseph Pierce. All right. So how do you say or what would you tell somebody? Well, what makes a great book? If you were talking to a college student, let's say, um, how would you define it? Well, one of the ways we recognize great books is that they survive uh, our, our own lives. They, they have they have survived and they're written um, in order to express a truth that is not true once, but is always true. And that's why you can turn to a great book again and again and. Uh, never get tired of reading it and also never get to the bottom of it. It's like a deep well that continues to quench your thirst and uh, is always left with more water to, to draw from there. Thank you for that. And and just just very quickly, um, for those of you just joining us, Joseph Pierce and Dale Alquist are joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe. And we're discussing Joseph Pierce's new book, 12 Great Books Going Deeper into Classic Literature. Just to piggyback on that real quick. So, so Joseph, you have 12 books in here from Shakespeare to Solzhenitsyn. Uh, like, what's your primary alongside of what dale just said but what's your primary like criteria criteria that you use or what did you use in choosing these particular 12 books well first of all i, I would like to say that that my understanding of the great books dovetails exactly with dale's um that uh, a great book is like a great wine that it that it ages uh uh, uh well uh and we we, we talk about the canon of great books. So saints are canonized. Well, we know once a saint is canonized that the saints in heaven, uh, that's authentic. We also have a, a, the, the, the books are canonized. And so generally speaking, you know, the, we should not think about something being considered a great book until it's aged. And I would say it should be at least 50 years from publication um, uh, before, even you know, even if it is a great book, we, we can't really make an objective judgment until there's a critical distance between between us and it, um, so to, 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 to be able to disentangle that which is merely fashionable and faddish from that which is, as Dale says, something which is enduring and everlasting. And so, uh, so great books are, are canonized. And so the, 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 we, this is the canon. So as regards the second part of your question, uh, this is a confession time, right? Mayor culpa, mayor culpa, mayor maxima culpa. Um, these 12 books are in here because, uh, quite frankly, I'd already written on them. Uh, you know, so that, <laughs> it's a book that was ready-made. And, you know, that once you're a full-time writer, you, you, you learn how not to make any extra un unnecessary effort. So, you know, I realized that over the years, I'd written uh, on, on several books, several of the great books at 
at, uh, at uh, what's the word, um, at sufficient length and depth, you know, sort of five or 6,000 words per, per, per book, that these would make a relatively substantial chapters in a standalone volume. So uh, the, these selected themselves because these were 12 books that I'd already written on it at, at length. Uh, and um, and they're, they're they're put in, but you know the, the point is it doesn't up to as long as they are canonized, shall we say, um, it doesn't really matter because obviously you can't write uh, in this depth on all the great books, right? Because there are several hundred of them, it would be a whole shelf, and even if I had the, the time, I wouldn't have the ability because I haven't read them all. Um, so you know, so you obviously you're going to focus on the works you know, and and so this is twelve of the great books. Um, so that's why as I insisted, by the way. That it was it'd be called twelve great books and not great books, or certainly not the great books, because clearly that 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 uh, suggests that this is the canon and this is merely twelve titles selected from the canon. Yeah, I could have answered that question too. I knew that's why the book was written because he'd already written it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it, Joe Rastinello. What? Obviously, you know, when you talk about great books, they talk about truths that basically run through all of them. I could think of books that influenced me in my life, um, The Grapes of Wrath, uh, Herman Hess, Billy Budd, um, Hemingway, uh, The Old Man in the Sea, uh, books that deeply affected me after I read them. But they're universal truths. Um, these are things I think that all societies have to focus on because no matter where you live, whether you live in the, the heart of Africa, in the Amazon, or you live in New Jersey, these are things that are, go are going to affect you. Um, talk about those common themes, uh, both of you actually, that, that run through all these books that deeply affect us. I'm going to defer to Dale in the first instance because I've, I've had more airtime so far and I want to keep this fair. <laughs> well, uh, obviously, the uh, the great truths are moral truths and all the great books are telling moral tales. And they always are a battle between good and evil. And sometimes the great books plumb deeply into evil only as a way of pointing to good. You 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 see good through its through its privation. And, and some of the characters in, in some of these books are truly bad characters, but we, we are watching how they became bad. We're seeing a tragedy take place. Uh, you know, the, the Shakespeare characters, for instance, like Macbeth and Othello, who, uh, who have clearly good men who have fallen and, and then multiply their errors. I, I think jo Joseph had a great line in one of them. He called uh, Macbeth a, a tragedy of errors as opposed to... Uh, Shakespeare's comedy of errors. Comedy of errors, yeah. Yeah, that's a good line. Uh, and, and but so so we are. It's it's always a battle between good and evil, uh, and it, that's that's going to be dramatic to begin with. There's going to be this dramatic tension, and what the great books do is they give us characters that we can understand. We can believe in them as being real characters fighting these real battles, and us either cheering for them or yelling at the page or the stage saying, don't do it, don't do it. That's what pulls us in because uh, these are these are human stories about about trying to get to heaven. Joseph Pierce. Yeah, yeah but just, just to add to that, again, obviously I, I agree with all that. I just to, to compliment it in both senses of the word, with an I and with an E, um, that, uh, that 
Tolkien said of fairy stories that they hold up a mirror to man. And, and G.K. Chesterton says in, in his uh, chapter in, from Orthodoxy, The Ethics of Elfland, which was hugely influential on both Tolkien and Lewis, that fairy stories show us uh, the way things should be. In other words, he says that it's not it's not earth that judges heaven, but heaven that judges the earth. Therefore, it's not it's not the earth that judges fairyland. It's fairyland that judges the earth. So the way that great books hold up uh, a mirror to man, I think it's in two ways. It holds it shows us who we are and it shows us our relationship with our neighbor and with our God and with creation, with the cosmos. But it also shows us or inspires us or should do so to how we should be, what things should be, what our relationship should be to our neighbor and to our God and to ourselves to understand ourselves more fully so it's both pointing showing us who we are in our fullness and our fallenness but also who we're called to be um, and so that that i think is that the mirror is both who we are and who we should be Thank you for that, Joseph Pierce. Uh, so if you're just joining us, Joseph Pierce and Dale Alquist are with us. We're discussing Joseph's new book, 12 Great Books, Going Deeper into Classic Literature. That's available at Ignatius Press and many other um, outlets. And please remember, jpierce.co. That's Joseph Pierce's um, website. We we would encourage all of you out there to please go and uh, look look at the website and subscribe. You know, get on his mailing list. Um, I have a question. I mean, am I being unfair? Uh, I'll throw it out to Dale first, and then we'll go to Joseph. Am I being unfair where if I say, I don't hear, let alone see, I don't hear about any great books being written nowadays. Joe Resinello mentioned some 20th century novels. Old Man in the Sea mentioned Hemingway. Let's say you could even throw in some, let's say, some really, you know, like say some some books that you wouldn't consider quote-unquote Christian, but still might be considered great works. I think of, let's say, by an atheist like Camus, like The Stranger or something like that, okay? But starting somewhere maybe around 70 or 80 years ago, please correct me if I'm wrong, Dale, I'll start with you. Has there been just like a dearth of anything worth even reading out there outside of books like 12 Great Books written by Joseph Pierce? Is there anything worth reading that's being that's being produced right now? Well, do do remember that part of our definition of great books is that they, they have to be separated uh, from us in time a little bit. They have to stand the test of time. And a lot of the books that are being written right now, we it's too early to judge. How are are they are they simply trendy? Have they have they broken through with some uh, timeless quality that we haven't realized yet? Um, it's it's too early to tell. Uh, and a, a lot of us. Uh, tend to read the old books because they have been tested, and we're gonna we're gonna let the folks right now figure out which books written now are gonna last longer. <laughs> All right. And, and, and I should also point out that um, a lot of the modern literature right now is what's being taught in our academies instead of the classic literature, and that's actually a fault of the modern academy. There, there, there. There's too much focus on trendy literature right now. And we're not teaching students the timeless works. And we're resisting that because of what I said earlier, because the timeless works are moral works. Well, let me, let me pick it up, piggyback on that and kick it over to Joseph Pierce real quick. Joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe's Joseph Pierce and Dale Alquist. Um, you mentioned about these great works. Joe asked you, Joe Resinello asked you, um, you mentioned timeless truths and, and universal themes. Does it seem to be like that? Those things are not exactly, if you want to talk about trendy, um, don't seem to be things that are important to write about. Now everything seems to be about an ideology um, and, and everything that goes along with that. To me, even if I was, let's say, inclined to even think I might want to read something like that, it just seems so empty. 
There just doesn't like there doesn't seem to be anything there. Like you got you mentioned in the book, in your book, Joseph Pierce, like take Julius Caesar. Okay. Julius Caesar, you could just, as Dale mentioned, you could just keep reading it over and over and over and over again. I have. Because I, I know, because I have, all right? Uh, everybody's the everybody's the bad guy. You read into a play where everybody's the bad guy. Uh, like, you don't even know who to root for. Um, but there's something about that. There's something much, much, much deeper. And it just seems to me, Joseph Pierce, I'm going to kick it over to you, that that going, going uh, writing on that level doesn't seem to be in vogue, doesn't seem to be trending. Everything is ideology and all these superficial things to write about rather than these, these universal and deeper truths. Thing is, there's nothing new here. In every generation, there's the tendency or the temptation to be uh, up to date. And the paradox is that if something's simply and only up to date, it's absolutely guaranteed it's going to be out of date. These things are not going to last, right? Fads fade, right? Fashions go out of fashion. So, you know, how many people, for instance, read socialist realism these days, right? I mean, the, the, the work that was inspired by the communism of the 20th century, nobody, right? Because it was ideological and up to date and relevant in inverted commas, and it, which is something is considered relevant for the perspective of a contemporary ideology. It means you can guarantee and prophesy it will be irrelevant very soon. So um, coming back to your early question, though, I mean, you've got, if you go back as far as 70 years, well, I did use the word 50, uh, you know, then you know, you go back to the 1950s, we have the Lord of the Rings being written then, we have the Chronicles of Narnia being written then, we have Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis being written then. If you go on a little bit, the early 1960s, you have One Day in Life of Ivan Denisovich by Alexander Solzhenitsyn being written. So so I think, you know, if you're, if you're going to stick to the golden rule of 50 years minimum, then we can see there's an ongoing living tradition of great books being written. And I agree with Dale that when we get too close, it's like, you know, it's, it, it, it gets too close, it becomes blurred. We can't actually see clearly the extent to which this, this thing has uh, timeless timelessness about it but i would say and i agree with dale that you know we prefer to read the old books the great books because they're tested tried and tested and deep and we know we're not wasting our time right um but i do encourage people always to actually check out contemporary literature particularly contemporary catholic and christian literature um uh, because it's being written and the, one of the problems is that um most of us don't know it's being written because when they, they, it's not on our radar and if we want a living culture we do have to patronize those who are actually producing works of art who are still living. So I would encourage people to check out you know, the, 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 what's being published. Ignatius Press publishes contemporary fiction. We've got some wonderful new publishers out there now, such as Clooney Media uh, and um, uh, I'm not going to forget the names of them that I'm speaking about, but they're out there. So um, so check out what is what is being written today and of course it's going to be uneven and and you know that but the point is you're being part of keeping a living tradition of catholic literature alive if you stay abreast of some new good new things that are happening well that's why we encourage everybody joseph of course to go on your website because i'm sure that you're pointing these things out there at jpierce.co so uh joseph pierce and dale alquist are joining us to discuss joseph's new book 12 great books going deeper into classic literature joe Rasinello. Let's talk about St. Augustine's Confessions. That's on your list, Joseph. Um, you say Augustine is accessible and applicable because he's one of us. Clearly, I think you're referring to, um, you know, he he led a wayward life, and then he became a very holy man, um, arguably one of the greatest Catholic minds, you know, in Christendom. Um, talk about that book specifically. Uh, 
to be truthful with you, I, I, I attempted to read it. I, I thought it was heavy, to be honest with you. But, you know, but at the same time, it, it's impactful. Clearly, his story, the arc of his story. Um, I, I, I found uh, the seven story mountain, uh, like as far as the arc. Uh, who is the gentleman? I can't believe I can't think of his Thomas name. Thomas Merton. Correct. I found that story, to be honest with you, resonating a little bit closer to my heart. But talk about why you included uh, Augustine. Clearly, it's a classic. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the great poet uh, Jeremiah Hopkins in his poem, The Wreck of the Deutschlands, talks about there being two types of conversion. There is the once at a crash, St. Paul, or the slow melting, Augustine. So in some sense, you know, he is an archetype of a certain type of convert who doesn't have this blind, sudden, blind, blinding flash that, you know, at this moment of uh, epiphany and he becomes uh, a Catholic overnight. That does happen, of course, but um, and for many more of us, and our, our speakers one, this process of conversion is something that happens over a period of time. Um, and so we, we can, when we read St. Augustine's story, which, where his conversion does take a while and where, where he's actually actively con resisting conversion because it means changing his lifestyle and what have you we can actually re that resonates with us because he is us in that sense so um so uh, there, to me it's astonishing how uh well a perennially relevant augustine story is today i'll give you one one just quick example for instance you know there's a famous story in augustine's confessions about when he go he and his friends go and steal pear pears from a tree um, uh, and they don't. They, they still the pairs not because they're hungry, just because of, of the basically the fact that it's wrong. They're doing it because they know it's wrong, right? There's a there's a there's a conscious wickedness. And I remember exactly the same thing when I was a child. I lived in the countryside in England, and there were apple orchards and pear orchards and strawberry fields around the small town I was growing up in. And we used to go out and used to put it scrumping, which is basically stealing the farmer's crops. And part of the fun of it was the fact you might get caught, right? I mean, it's the, the edge. So, so you know, that, that resonated exactly with me because that was me. <laughs> you know, I, I did exactly what Augustine did for exactly the same motives. Absolutely. Dale, your comments on the confessions. Well, uh, Joseph and I both being converts, of course, we, we connect to this book um, and this story. We just recently celebrated the conversion of St. Paul which is the most famous conversion, Augustine is probably the second most famous conversion in all of history. And Joseph and I are also devoted to, to some converts like Newman and, and G.K. Chesterton. And so this is, yeah, it, it, I, I repeat, it is our story, but it's, it's everybody's story because they have to confront their sin. That's what you have to start by confronting your sin and realize that you are not, you are separate from God. And you, you, you have to reunite with God, and there's there's no more dramatic story than that. I think it's the honesty, uh, it's Augustine's pure honesty that draws you in more than anything else. Let me let me I'll ask you this. Also, oh, go ahead, I, Joseph, I, I, please. I, just, just one very briefly, because I think there's a double entendre, uh, at least we can see a double entendre in the title of the Confessions, and I think it's what Dale's getting at, is that uh, before you uh, can confess your faith, you have to confess your sins. So basically, that's what that's what that's what Augustine does. The whole of the book is a confession of his sins, and it's that confession of his sins that actually leads him ultimately to be able to have, make a confession of faith. 
Let me let me ask you something. Is I mean, I know like they're, they're obviously the the Christians in general, Catholics in particular. You know, we're fighting a, a battle right now. I mean, there's an obvious there's an obvious culture war that's going on and been going on for quite some time. One of the targets, of course, is the gospel. Um, is is the the reason why the tar uh, the gospel the target is for the reasons you're mentioning is because let's just talk about the greatest story. Okay, the greatest story is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, um, his life, his passion, his death, his resurrection. Um, I, I I don't know where I'm going with this. Is that the reason why God, the gospel itself, a lot of times is under attack because it is so impactful? Because no matter who you are, you can't let's say come away after reading let's say the Gospel of John. And not be affected by it. Unless you have a really closed heart and a closed mind, you're going to be affected by it. Joseph Pierce, am I wrong in that? Well, uh, no, you're, you're right in that. And I think that's what G.K. Chester is doing with his book, The Everlasting Man. I think part of, part of the problem is that we take the greatest truths for granted. We don't actually see them because they become so familiar. Um, so the, the, the story of Jesus Christ is the greatest story ever told, uh, and it's a miraculous story, and it changes everything. And what and what, what uh, Cheston does in The Everlasting Man is to show that the whole of history prior to Christ is really a preparation for him, and that he changes everything. His, his, his incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, his establishment of the church changes everything. And so history before the resurrection was pointing towards it, and history since it is basically baptized by it. The, 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 the centrality of the gospel is what makes sense of everything else. And I say Chesterton uh, does that beautifully in The Everlasting Man. Dale? Chester, uh, Jesus says, blessed is he who takes no offense in me, and we are living in an age where people are simply offended by Christ and by Christianity. And uh, there's, there's, there's sort of a instant pushback at any proclamation of absolute truth and is that simply a real quick because only have a couple minutes before the break is that simply a function of the modern world i mean let's say i remember um the 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 uh, british historian uh paul johnson in his book modern times um the the first chapter is a relativistic world okay so is this relativism so you're talking about absolute truth deeper truths okay objective truths okay uh jesus christ who is the way the truth and the life okay paul johnson starts out modern times with uh, his chapter on a relativistic world is this is this this disdain for great books, if you if you would agree that there is a disdain for great books, have to do with that this modern notion that well, everything's relative. I'm not if you know I'm not going to learn anything from Shakespeare or Solzhenitsyn or or, or Evelyn Waugh. Dale, your comments on that, then Joseph, before the break. The, the great books are a product of of Christendom, and uh, and our we live in a time when Christendom itself is under attack. It's ironic where. The, the, the civilization, the culture built by the church and by Christianity, we are we are minorities in our own, you know, in the in the civilization that, that, that we help build. We have become minorities and, and are forced to defend it, and we have to defend it in using truth, beauty, and goodness. That's that's the only way we can recapture the, the culture that, that we help create. Absolutely, Joseph, your comments, please. The, the key thing, I think, is that we do have to realize that the battle between good and evil, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn tells us, is, is fought in each individual human heart, in each individual generation. And this is the war, ultimately, between good and evil, is the war between the city of God and the city of man. So relativism is merely a manifestation of the city of man. It's, it's, it's merely an attack upon those objective good 
kept, kept your proofs which are good and beautiful, that are manifesting Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. There's, this, is a, this is a perennial war in every generation. It's not new. I mean, the, the, you know, Marxism was new in some sense. The sort of radical relativism we have now is new in some sense, but it's all a manifestation of the evil in the human heart, which goes back to, to, to one word, which is pride. Thank you for that. Uh, before we go to the break, Joseph Pierce, uh, where could where could our audience members at the front line with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Network, where could they buy the book, 12 great books going deeper into classic literature? So it is available at Ignatius Press. And where else, Joseph Pierce? Well, the key thing is they go to my website. They'll keep up with what I'm doing and all, all, all things. So jpierce.co. And I would I would advise people to buy from the publisher, Ignatius.com. Don't buy from one of the globalist corporations. So practice what we preach. So either go to a small Catholic bookstore and buy it or buy it directly from the publisher, Ignatius.com. You, you took the words right out of my mouth, Joseph Pierce. Don't buy it from Amazon. Oh, Dale, uh, where can our audience members uh, find out more about what you have going on? Obviously, you're you're the biggest spokesman for G.K. Chesterton. Where can our audience members learn more about what you have going on and about you? Chesterton.org for all things Chesterton. And then also uh, ChestertonSchoolsNetwork.org uh, uh, to learn about the classical schools that we're working on. ChestertonSchoolsNetwork.org. Absolutely. So we have Joseph Pierce. We have Dale Alquist. We're discussing Joseph's new book, 12 Great Books. Um, and we're going to take a quick break at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. Remember to download our apps and share it with your friends uh, so that you can have access to all of our station's content. And wherever you, if you like what Joe and I are doing, um, social media, The Frontline with Joe and Joe on YouTube and at with Joe and Joe on Twitter. Please follow us there. So stick around. We have another great segment coming up. Catholic Radio works, and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith, families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and His Church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back, everyone, to The Frontline with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Racinello. We are way in the breach with Joseph Pierce and Dale Alquist. We're discussing Joseph's new book, 12 Great Books, Going Deeper into Classic Literature. Joe Racinello, where do you want to start? Well, Joseph Pierce, you chose uh, four of Shakespeare's plays, Romeo and Juliet, Julius Caesar, Macbeth, and Othello. Talk about why you chose them, but also go into... <laughs> The, the 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 fact sadly that there are no more plays like i live near new york i don't like musicals to be completely honest with you i like drama plays or morality plays i used to go when i was single believe it or not there was a catholic uh theater company by columbia of all places uh, Columbia University, and they would put on morality plays in the basement of a church for 20 bucks. And it was phenomenal, phenomenal acting, phenomenal stories that you would leave and think about for days after you saw the play. That's gone. And instead, you go to these productions in New York, they cost a fortune. And frankly, I think they're not they're not deep. I'm not saying the people who are who are in them aren't talented, but I think we would be better served with going into the basement of a church and hearing a, a classic play done by trained actors. Joseph, what do you think? I'm going to 
begin by plugging the uh, the uh, Chesterton Schools Network. Um, <laughs> no, that, that, an, an aspect of, of that, and, and Dale could speak to this more uh, in more detail and more fully. But an aspect of the Chesterton Schools curriculum is that they 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 actually don't just study Shakespeare. Uh, they they actually put on productions of Shakespeare plays as part of the curriculum, and also that they that they 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 um, put on uh, original plays being written uh, by, by contemporary uh, Catholics. So this is a living tradition and it has to remain a living tradition. And, and what we find is, you know, the musicals, of course, are high budget. Uh, this is this is this is this is not folk culture. This is not coming from the grassroots. It's being imposed by by, by the elites. Uh, and so we, we do need to be practicing what we preach, and that means we have to be doing what we do on the streets, and that includes, of course, small black box theatres. We should be we should be aware of what our own local community theatres are doing. Now, in some areas. That could be really horrible, <laughs> um, but you know, you check it out, find out, find out which ones have have, have a finished agenda, which ones are doing good things, and then, and then patronize those that are doing good things. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, well, Dale, real quick, your thoughts. Yeah, I I, I have written twenty five plays, okay, <laughs> and uh, and they've all been performed. We need to get them. I was gonna say we need to get them like out there more. Dale. <laughs> and so, um, but go to lepantomedia.com. LepantoMedia.com. My son Adrian is uh, getting these plays uh, available so that schools can put them on and and theater groups as well. But we have uh, everything from retelling of fairy tales to uh, comedy mysteries to heavy religious dramas about saints, retelling the lives of saints. We just finished a production at Chester Academy in Minneapolis this last weekend of a new play I wrote called Nuns and Ghosts. And it's uh, it grabs you. It's about it's a ghost story in a monastery, and it's got a very powerful message. So yeah, we're, it's it ha, it ha, it's doing it at the grassroots level, and and uh, it's a great pleasure to be part of the movement. It, it, it's happening, and and these plays are being put on. So go to lepantomedia.com. I remember back in the day in another life when I thought I was going to be the, the most famous actor in the world and win 10 Academy Awards. Thank God I dispelled with that dream. Um, but I was at Seton Hall University, and I just want to piggyback on this, okay? Seton Hall University, we used to do as uh, undergrads, we used to do uh, plays all year long, a Shakespeare play every year, okay? So I was in As You Like It. Um, after I left, they did Romeo and Juliet. They did all these things. Um and uh, I also was involved with the Celtic Theater Group, which is a group in residence at Seton Hall. We did. I remember talking about this then, guys. Um, we were on the Jersey TV talking about the same thing. Me and the director of a, a John B. Keane, uh, you know, Irish uh, playwright pr production. The theater was theater in the round at Seton Hall University was packed. Packed with people going crazy for these theater productions. Like, and we used to try to tell people, you don't have to go to New York to see a play. You don't need the New York Times to have written a review of this great new David Mamet play. Nothing against David Mamet. You know what I'm trying to say. But it was, it's like this, this, this false notion that, well, if it's not playing in New York and the New York Times doesn't review it, that means I don't want to see it. No, not so. Because these local productions can be absolutely phenomenal if you have people who are passionate OK, like you guys. All right. Uh, actors who want to get involved and you could you could create these really great productions that people will love. Um, and so I, I just wanted to throw that out there because I, I hate that people like think that way. I mean, am I, uh, th th your comments on that, Joseph? 
thing is, I mean, this parallel of what we're saying earlier about about contemporary uh, Catholic uh, literature, right? On on the one hand, you have the canon, right? Uh, those that are tried and tested. So, as regards drama, we 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 have Shakespeare, we have Sophocles, we have. have to have a living culture so we have to have plays being written and performed by contemporary writers and the only thing i would say about the new york times bestseller list one of the great miracles is very occasionally something the new york times bestseller list is worth reading or watching <laughs> once in a while joseph pierce once in a while so if you're just joining I us think, i think for instance i mean uh Tim Powers, a contemporary Catholic novelist who's best known to popular culture as the person who wrote the novel that, that inspired the Pirates of the Caribbean movie series. But he's written, uh, you know, supernatural thrillers from, thrillers from a profoundly Catholic perspective that make the New York Times bestseller list. Amor Towles, more recently, with books like A Gentleman in Moscow, have made the New York Times bestseller list. But generally speaking, if something makes the New York Times bestseller list, it's a, it's a good reason for staying away from it. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that rule of thumb. Uh, if you're just joining us, Joseph Pierce, D.L. Alquist, you're joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe. We're discussing Joseph's new book. So it's 12, uh, 12 great books going deeper into classic literature. Please buy it from the publisher, Ignatius Press. Uh, Joe Resinello, where do you want to go? Joseph Pierce, you talked about uh, Frankenstein in the book. You, basically, it's it was a clearly a very influential novel, but you also stated it's it's very misunderstood and abused. Um, obviously, the abuse is like the cartoons, um, I would think. Uh, but but why is it misunderstood? Well, it's, it's misunderstood largely, actually, because the uh, uh, it, it's abused because the novel itself is confused. Um, now, we have to remember that Mary Shelley was a teenager when she wrote this. And what's intriguing about it is not that the fact it's a work of cohesiveness and coherence, like Julius Caesar, like a, a play by Shakespeare, but it's a piece by a teenage girl who's been abused philosophically by her being brought up by an atheist father, by her eloping with an atheist poet, uh, and, and how she's come into terms with the, with the mess that that's made of her life and of the lives of others, uh, and, and how ultimately she's groping quite clearly in the right direction to the healthier poetry, for instance, of Coleridge and Wordsworth, uh, that first generation of romantic poets, to a, dis to a disdain for the pride that leads to scientism and the destructiveness that's the consequence of that pride. All of those really good ingredients are in there, but, it, but you're not going to find something which is uh, completely coherent and cohesive because this is a teenage girl who's trying to work things out. And the fascination of the novel is we see her doing that and we see her basically moving, groping, grappling in the right direction. Yeah, what's, what's absolutely amazing about Frankenstein is that it, it wasn't discovered as a great book till after the movie had already created all the misimpressions of it. So, you know, for, for, for readers... Readers had to discover the book all over again, uh, and you know the 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 film uh, monsters and everything totally gave the wrong impression of of the book. And it's it's one of those not only a great work um, that is is timeless. This is one that gets better and better throughout the ages. I think. What, what's funny well, is had, that. So sorry, it had it had yeah, it has a, there's something also about it which adds to its power. It's it's sort of mythological in the sense that it 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 creates almost archetypes. So for instance, 
when when uh, it became the, the fad in the 1980s of genetically modified food, when there was a reaction, reaction against genetically modified food, they became known in the in the mass media as Frankenstein foods or Franken foods, right? In other words, that it's it's a bit like the adjective Orwellian from 1984, right? That, that some some books are so powerful they actually establish mythological tropes, mythological archetypes, where, whereby we can see something. Well. That if we if we if we pursue that we're going to go the same way as Frankenstein, you know. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that, Joseph. Um, yeah, I was just thinking in my mind when Joe mentioned that you know misunderstood and abused. I was thinking about Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. I was like, yeah, that's 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 not quite. I I don't think that's where Shelley uh, wanted her character to end up. Uh, Joe Resinello. Let's talk Dorian Gray. Ironically, this is uh, for our listeners out there. This is included in uh, Joseph's 12 books. I read it recently on a whim. I had it in my house and I never read it. And it was like one of those things like I should read this. So I did. Haunting. A haunting book, to be truthful with you. Again, one of those books that like for a week after the fact that you read it, it resonates in your head. Um, basically, Wilde states this. In his attempt to kill conscience, Dorian Gray kills himself. I think this is a book that people of this age should read. The Vanity. Um of the, the main character, how he destroys himself, but yet as he looks in the mirror, he sees beauty, but there is no beauty there. And and as the, as the story evolves, Joseph, talk about that book, because I think this is absolutely a classic and all people should read it. Well, I think I'd like Dale to go first because I know that D Dale loves Oscar Wilde and uh, and he can speak very lucidly on it. And then I'll, I'll add to anything he says. Well, I just want to say I, I, I do really enjoy Oscar Wilde, but I really enjoy Joseph Pierce on Oscar Wilde. Uh, his, his, um, he wrote a biography of Oscar Wilde, Joseph did, that is by far the best biography of Oscar Wilde ever written. Uh, you know, Oscar Wilde is this, this modern hero to the, um, to the gay community, and this was a man who was anything but gay. He was a man who was absolutely suffering, uh, the results of a, of making some miserable choices in his life, and was was crawling, striving, scratching towards the Catholic Church, and his works of art, of literature, including this book, are are confessions. He's he's screaming his confessions um, using using the art, and uh, uh, it's it's great that we were talking about Augustine's confessions. These, these are Oscar Wilde's confessions. But then, yeah, the Dorian Gray is truly a masterpiece. Uh, again, um, enter the culture. People, you know, when, when someone's uh, doesn't age proper, they keep staying young. You say, do you, do you have a painting hanging somewhere of yourself? Uh, you know that, that that has gotten into the culture. The uh, the idea of, of people preserving their youth. But it, there's there's the morality tale right there. It seems like everyone sacrifices big things to maintain. This false beauty, this this image of themselves, and uh, Joseph uh, really brings that out very well in his uh, essay on on Dorian Gray. Joseph Pierce. Yeah, so I mean, uh, I only I only wanted Dal to go first. So I knew he'd talk, talk talk about how wonderful my book was. So thank you, Dal. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the key thing about Peter Dorian Gray is this is, um, Dorian Gray is a self-portrait of Wilde, uh, and, and, and not just the character of Dorian Gray, though he is, the character of Lord Henry Wotton, the cynic and the critic, um, uh, and even Basil Hallward, the artist. So the, basically, this is Wilde looking at himself sort of collided kaleidoscopically through these three different facets of who he is. And it, it, it is basically a de facto, it becomes it's, it's prophetic because it becomes autobiographical. So not only does Oscar Wilde destroy himself through choosing to live the sort of lifestyle that Dorian Gray, the fictional character, lives in the novel. And this is the important thing about the, 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 uh, the moral of the novel. It's not just that that simple choices, choosing that sort of lifestyle is self-destructive, it takes out lots of other people on the way down. In other words, there are many innocent victims to, 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 to choosing this lifestyle. So in, in Wilde's own life, of course, when he decided to, to, to adopt a homosexual lifestyle, he abandoned his wife, he abandoned his two young sons, he basically spoiled their lives as well as spoiling his own and spoiling the lives of many other people. Um, and Dorian Gray does exactly the same thing. And on his own sort of downward spiral to self-destruction, he's destroying life after life after life. Uh, I, yeah, I, 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 I mean, we, could, we don't have a, a ton of time, but that's why we're recommending the book. This way people could, could write or read what Joseph Pierce has to say, because Dorian Gray is just one of those, again, it's one of those, one of those novels you could read over and over and over again and probably never get you get fully where you know where you know everything about it um let's go to some something a little bit more popular a christmas carol right? everybody knows scrooge um and i don't care who you are i don't care if you think in your mind you're the you're the most unfeeling person in the world and you pick up dickens a christmas carol you're going to be moved by it yeah, you're going to be moved by Tiny Tim, whether you like it or not, all right? And you're going to be moved by Scrooge. Um, and everybody knows the story, but I want to talk about that a little bit because, um, you know, Scrooge, at the end of the day, is changed in this novel um, and, and you know, becomes somebody who, who gets, I guess, realizes exactly what he's been. Um, talk about that a little bit, Joseph Pierce, and then we'll get some Dale's comments on that. Well, I mean, the key thing is here that this is the power of literature, you know, that, that, that certain aspects, certain things in literature become part of our psychological understanding of reality. So, you know, the, the most, the most, perhaps the most obvious is, is, is that fish, fictional narrative, that fictional story that Jesus Christ tells about the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son becomes an archetype. The prodigal son is so real, he's a fictional character. He's a figment of our Lord's imagination. And yet we don't say that the prodigal son is like us. We say we are like the prodigal son. In other words, in some sense, although he's a, a literary character, he's more real than we are. And Scrooge, uh, in many respects, is maybe possibly the most famous literary prodigal son um you know that he he is one that, that wanders away from the goodness that he was offered when he was young I mean, he had some suffering when he was young but there was love that was offered to him uh and he turns his back on it to pursue basically avarice and pride and his return is what um you know jrr tolkien uh, coined the word eucatastrophe the sudden joyous turn in the story and the great stories have this sudden joyous turn and there, there are very few more powerful sudden joyous turns in the story than, than than scrooge waking up on christmas morning you know and and realizing that the, the ghosts have managed to do it all in one night and then you have this new scrooge Dale Alquist, 
Yeah, it's also again another story of conversion. Um, it's it's more of the Saint Paul type rather than the Augustine type, right? He gets knocked off his horse, but uh, it's it's such a universal story told so well that uh, one of the definitions of a classic is that you can retell versions of it um, and st still have the great effect that the original creates. This this story has been retold in film, in different versions, in different settings, different cultures, the same basic story, and it works every time. It works every time. In this case, Dickens is like Bach. You know, you can play Bach on the electric guitar and on the banjo and still Bach. It's still just as good. Only certain works of art can can accomplish that. Absolutely. So Dale Auquist, Joseph Pierce joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe. Please go out and buy Joseph's book, uh, 12 Great Books Going Deeper into Classic Literature. For those watching on social media, here's the cover of the book, um, and that is available at Ignatius Press. And we encourage you all, please, we, we always ask our audience, you can buy books from the larger outfits. Please buy them from the publishers. But we have to support our Catholic publishers because there's the ones churning out the books that hopefully eventually are going to become great over time. Um, and Joseph Pierce is obviously uh, somebody who you know is has a lot to talk about on this subject, and that's why he wrote this book. So, with that, oh, and by the way, Joseph Pierce's website, J Pierce P E A P E A R C E dot C O. Please go on his website and subscribe and uh, and get on his mailing list. Uh, so, Joe Resinella, we have some time left. Where do you want to go? Joseph Pierce, and then we'll go to Dale. Uh, obviously, you picked twelve books. There's so many classic books we could you know talk about. Um, you know, a couple that come to my mind that moved me, uh, Hess's Siddhartha. I read that actually recently, sitting around my house because I felt like I should read it. Um, phenomenal book. Another one which moved me in terms of different books was uh, The Post Office by Tagore. Highly recommend that. I don't know. A lot of people don't know of that. I read that recently. But there's so many good books outside of the 12 that you noted. Um what what other three would you add if you had to add them? Well, let me just say that I've been writing for the last two years, every fortnight, you know, every two weeks, a series for Crisis magazine called Great Literature in a Nutshell. Well, I've actually, unlike this book, where you know, each chapter is about six, five or 6,000 words, that I, I try to encapsulate a work in, um, uh, in only 1,000 words or thereabouts. Uh, so it's a challenge uh, to put these great works in a nutshell. But again, I'm going to stop at 50. But I, I needn't. I can go on forever. So, so that that the real the real the real question is, um, <laughs> you know, where do you begin in naming additional ones? You want three? I read an I read a, 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 an essay for the Imaginative Conservative last month um, called uh, "The Seven Pillars of Western Civilization," uh, and uh, in that, uh, I, 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 the Iliad, and the Odyssey, and the Divine Comedy. I don't think any of those are amongst the twelve here. So that's there's three easy ones to add. Dale? Joe, I'm going to pretend you asked me a different question. <laughs> it's all good. Go ahead. <laughs> the question that you asked me was, Dale, what was your favorite chapter in this book by Joseph Pierce? And I'll be happy to answer that. <laughs> I, I most enjoyed the chapter on Wuthering Heights because I haven't read Wuthering Heights, and maybe I will now. <laughs> the point is, um, you know, the Bronte sisters – they're they're mostly read by women. Those are those are girl writers who girls really enjoy. And Joseph made a great case of why I need to read this book. I, I absolutely uh, 
appreciated that essay uh, above all the others because I was getting so much new stuff out of it. And that is why I want to praise this book. Uh, great literary criticism, which is what this, this book is, will invite you to read the book that you're reading about. If you've already read it, it'll add something that you haven't seen before, which it's supposed to do, and, and Joseph does that. He will, he will uh, add to the pleasure of, of having read the book before, but he will make you rush to the original text because you realize that it's, it's very important. He'll show you why. And, and even without giving anything away or with giving everything away, it, it'll make it a, a, a great pleasure to, to go and read the original. So we're we're discussing great books. Can I chime in and get your comments on uh, on one in particular that moved me in my life, that kind of helped on some level to shape my worldview? Is um, well, not just one particular work, uh, but Eliot himself, right? T.S. Eliot, um, the Wasteland, probably starting with the Wasteland, but then even beyond that, because I think a lot of times people associate, rightfully so, uh, Eliot with the Wasteland, but then you start getting deeper to use a word that you guys use, and you start reading four quartets, you get more of that Christian, those Christian themes, I think, are more a little bit more pronounced in four quartets. And like I said, the reason why I bring it up, because I love your both your comments on it, to me, in my life, and the way I view the world, has been tremendously shaped by reading the poetry of T.S. Eliot. Joseph, what do you think? T.S. Eliot is an absolutely marvelous poet, and um, that uh, that he again he what, the, the the depth you have in T.S. Eliot is a direct consequence of the knowledge he has of the great books. You know that the wasteland ultimately is is a collage of intertextual allusions to to the heritage of Western civilization, uh, and so it, it's it, 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 the more you understand the great books the more you can dive and delve deeper into T.S. Eliot, because that's where he takes you. And what Eliot says about Dante, he says that, 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 that uh, he, he, he used to carry an edition in the original Italian of the Divine Comedy around in his pocket. And he says, you know, that I've been, I've been rereading Dante, and I feel that while reading Dante, there's nothing I can do except to point to him and remain silent. Um, uh, thankfully, T.S. Eliot did not remain silent. Uh, and people, like my, my good friend, Father Dwight Longenecker, talks about T.S. Eliot's oeuvre, you know, his corpus being the early poetry being the Inferno, and then the, the middle poetry being the Purgatorio, and then the four, four quartets being the Paradiso. And there's a lot of truth to that. But the wasteland itself, the early part of the wasteland is a, is um, uh, a descent into the inferno, and it's in, it's in the it's in the final part that we actually have this emergence into a purgatorio and a promise of, of, of paradise. You had to remind me, Joseph Pierce, the last time you were on the front line with Joe and Joe, because I brought that up, and you said, "Yeah, but remember the end of the the end of the poem." You know, he's sitting on the shore fishing with the arid plain behind him, um, and it's something that you know sometimes we can tend to not. I'm going to speak for myself. Sometimes I tend to maybe despair a little bit or not be as hopeful. And I have to remember that, yes, there'll come a time when we'll sit on the shore fishing with that, that arid plain behind us and emerge from, let's say, that, that, that darkness, if you will. Dale, I love your comments on, on T.S. Yeah, Eliot. We haven't, we, haven't, we haven't yet mentioned uh, the, the, another great book we mentioned, which would be a similar mission if we didn't, and that's The, the, the Man Who Was Thursday by, by, by G.K. Chesterton. And I, I think in this context, it's actually important because 
The Man Who Was Thursday was written 14 years before Chesterton's uh, reception to the church. Um, and yet it, it's quite clear that, that the work is uh, a, a prophetic of, of his conversion. That when you read The Man Who Was Thursday, it's clear this man is essentially Catholic already, and it's only a matter of time. And exactly the same thing with The Wasteland. Now, when you read The Wasteland, it was written, you know, it was written sort of, uh, so I'll get this right now, it was written about six years before uh, Eliot's formal you know, reception into the Anglo-Catholic Church, but but his his conversion to Christianity is there. You can see it. The the, the wasteland is, is this is this is his reaction against godless modernity. And then the final part of the poem, you see his acceptance and embrace of Christianity. Thank you for that, Joseph. Uh, Go ahead, Dale. Please. Man of Thursday was written the same year that Chesterton wrote Orthodoxy, which is just you know astounding. He wrote those two great books back to back. Um, as for Eliot. You know, I like poems that rhyme. And uh, a after the love song of J. Alfred P Prufrock, Elliot has disenchanted me. I, <laughs> yeah. All right. Dale, say no more. Uh, we, we have a, we have like a minute or two left. Uh, Dale Alquist, some final comments, and then Joseph. Uh, well, uh, you know, classic literature is what the the Chester Academies are are teaching, and I certainly would encourage people to uh, to learn more about the the Chester Academies around the country. Uh, we are teaching the great books and and classical thinking and preserving the culture and uh, fighting the the present culture. So uh, go to ChestertonSchoolsNetwork.org to learn more about. Uh, the work that we're doing there. And if you want to learn more about G.K. Chesterton, who is represented in Joseph's book, uh, Manuist Thursday, go to chesterton.org. And you can also buy more Chesterton books from our webpage. Don't buy them from the river in South America. <laughs> Joseph, any final thoughts, please? Yeah, well, basically, I, I, I would just bring a Chesterton back into the conversation. Chesterton said uh, in uh, Orthodoxy, the tradition is the extension of the franchise. It's the, it's, it's the proxy of the dead and the enfranchisement of the unborn. The, the, the great works are this living voice of tradition, that insofar as we know them, we are listening to the, the voices of the past, to our great Christian brethren who lived in, 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 in days gone by and, and, and the greatest minds and thinkers of, of that. So we we're giving the proxy vote to the dead, to our ancestors, but also we're enfranchising the unborn because we're passing on this tradition as a living torch to new generations. If we don't do that, if we don't know the great books and we don't teach the great books, if we don't read the great books, we let that, 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 that flame go out and that would be criminal. Amen. Absolutely. Dale Alquist, Joseph Pierce, thank you so much for joining us here. Remember, everyone out there, please go out and buy the book, 12 Great Books Going Deeper into Classic Literature. Don't buy it from the river in South America. Dale, I'm stealing that, by the way, for future shows. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, like, I'm not, I, you know, you know, I'm not, you know, I think it was Elliot who said, you know, great artists, you know, steal, they, you know, bad right. artists yeah, imitate. Right. So I'm swiping that from you, Dale. Uh, okay, so you I'm, I'm using it moving forward. <laughs> and uh, and yes, please uh, follow Joseph Pierce on uh, jpierce.co. Uh, get on his mailing list uh, on there. This way you could be, you know, you could keep up with everything that he's producing. And that article that uh, Joseph writes in Crisis Magazine, it's great. And uh, Joseph, that's a once a week or once a month in Crisis that you write that? Once every two weeks. It's, it's, it's great literature in a nutshell. 
All right. So Joseph Pierce, Dale Alquist, thank you so much. And you know you're both welcome back on this show anytime. And thank you all out there for joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. Please download the app, the Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app, and share it with your friends. If you like Joe and I and what we're doing, uh, two primary locations on social media, the front line with Joe and Joe on YouTube and at with Joe and Joe on Twitter. Like, subscribe, share, follow, do all that fun stuff. And remember, until the next time, that our conversation is your conversation, and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.